Good morning. If you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13. In a few moments we're going to read starting there through Isaiah 53. <clears throat> what Treg left out of his introduction of me this morning was uh, I really do have a, a vast public speaking experience. That is, if you include 99% uh, of that being yelling at the TV. Uh, Mary is, is the public. Uh, people, uh, they genuinely love a story of a great rescue. And we're going to talk about a great rescue this morning. That's why uh, the sermon's entitled, Jesus, the Rescuing Servant. Uh, so they love the story of a great rescue. Blockbuster movies are made about them, like Saving Private Ryan. We also encounter real-life rescues that capture the public's attention and cause people to be transfixed and even to pray for a life-saving outcome for people they don't know. Who, if you're old enough, can remember back in 1987 when this baby fell down a 22-foot well at the age of 18 months? Can anybody remember her name? Jessica, very good. It took rescuers 58 hours to rescue her from this well. They, in fact, had to drill a hole, another hole next to it and then cut across. The harrowing, harrowing to think of an 18-month-old down there for... For 58 hours. Or consider the rescue of uh, 12, it's not a very good picture, but it's because it's in a cave. Consider the rescue of 12 soccer players in Thailand who were between the ages of 11 and 16 who, along with their soccer coach, became trapped in a cave which had flooded due to heavy rainfall. It took 18 days to rescue all of them from an almost impossible situation. The only person who died during this ordeal was sadly one of the rescue divers who was working to save them. I had an incident in my life this week where rescue almost had to be undertaken. I picked up my grandsons from swim team on Wednesday and since it was still early uh, it was still a little bit cool out, so me and the dog, Ruby, went out to the back patio. And I, I, I picked a chair that I shouldn't have. I have experience with these chairs. I should have known better. But they're kind of a black metal chair, and they're kind of, they rock. So I sat in, in one of these chairs and immediately flipped backward, hard. I slammed my head on the house, thought I'd cracked something in my neck. But Ruby was there. So she comes, like when, when dogs see somebody fall, it's like immediately, what's happening? What can I do? And I almost said, Lassie, go get help. Go get help, girl. Because I was stunned. Don't worry, the house is fine. But she did, in fact, help me to some degree um, because as I was struggling to get up, um, she was licking my face, which um, I think does help you 
to get up quicker. Um, so thank goodness for Lucy trying to rest, or Ruby, it's our old dog, Lucy, for Ruby trying to help. So today we'll be looking at in scriptures is the greatest rescue of all time. The rescue of an untold multitude of souls from the penalty of their sins. And as we continue in our series, Great Texts of the Bible, we come to a passage now that is one of the most talked about, one of the most cited passages in all of Scripture. Thousands upon thousands of sermons have been preached on this passage, and its verses appear in many places throughout the New Testament. But this is a sobering passage of Scripture that we're about to undertake. The scripture reading from Acts chapter 8 during the call to worship this morning should, I think, settle for the Christian who the passage in Isaiah is really talking about. This inspired account from the Word of God is clearly pointing to Jesus as the servant that is being referenced. Beliefs surrounding this passage are numerous, and one commentator describes it as a dense forest of opinions. And some passages are a little difficult to discern. However, our time this morning is brief, and we will be looking at this passage with, uh, hopefully, the same convictions as Philip when, beginning with this scripture, he told the Ethiopian eunuch the good news about Jesus Christ. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of scripture, beginning in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. We'll read through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no majesty or form that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and not and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace." And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. <clears throat> when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Please have a seat. We begin this morning with the servant's synopsis. This prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, which states with absolute certainty what will happen in the future, is being given some 700 years before the occurrence of the things he is prophesying about. That is the equivalent of someone having predicted in the 1300s what will be happening now in 2022. Think about that. In these first three verses, we are given a, a synopsis or a summary of what has happened already and what is going to happen in the world we live in. These first three verses is God himself speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel and ultimately to us. <clears throat> God says in verse 13 that his servant will act wisely. Jesus will be high and lifted up and exalted. 700 years before the birth of Christ, God speaks of Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation, sitting at the right hand of the Father himself. Jesus will accomplish the mission that he has undertaken, the mission that was confirmed and planned before the dawn of creation. So truly God has shared with us the ending of the story at the beginning of these three initial verses we're looking at. If you're one of those people who, while reading a book, will go and look at the ending because you can't wait to find out what happens, then these three, first three verses are for you. Verse 14 gives us in striking language what both intrigues us and turns our stomach at the same time. <clears throat> Jesus in his mistreatment and abuse at the hands of the Roman soldiers is rendered unrecognizable. If you were uh, an acquaintance of Jesus and you had been out of town and came back during Jesus' ordeal, you would have looked at, it and, looked at him and not known that it was him. He was unrecognizable because of the abuse. This verse prophesies that those who saw him would react with astonishment at his appearance. The suffering that Jesus endured, the penalty that he undertook for us is almost overwhelming to ponder. In verse 15, the prophet speaks of how the servant will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths in amazement at what will transpire at Christ's second coming when he returns to rule. It says he will sprinkle many nations. This is a phrase meaning cleansing. It would be an expression very familiar to the Jews as they engaged in ceremonial cleansing rituals. If we belong to Christ, if we have put our faith in him and him alone, we will be cleansed from all our sins 
by the shedding of his blood. Not only believing Jews, but also believing Gentiles as well will be cleansed from the guilt and the penalty of all of our sins. To say that the world will be quieted will be an understatement. Mouths will be agape at the things they are witnessing. Some translators like to use startle instead of sprinkle. But I think that it makes sense that not only will people's mouths be agape, but they will be startled. How could you not be when Christ returns? And what happens, happens. I had a Mary in a church, Mary and I and our, and our boys in a church that we attended a while ago, we would have occasionally a, a, an interim pastor. Sometimes he would fill the pulpit. His name was Dr. David Larson, and he was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he was a, had a very dramatic narrative style in his preaching. And sometimes he would get all foamed up and he would say, I'm straining at the leash of language. Well, I believe that's what's going to happen when Christ returns again. People will be straining at the leash of language to describe what's happening. The world and its leaders will be quieted. They will see and understand things about which they had not been told or heard. The realization of what they have missed will come crashing upon them like an avalanche. So these three verses give us a bit of a flyover of God's plan for his servant. Let's move now to the first three verses, the servant's sorrows. As we move on to Isaiah 53, we will now hear, a, this is a future lament. It's, it's a mourning, and it's an expression of grief and sorrow from the Jewish people who had rejected their Messiah. Verse 1 describes them reflecting back on their hard-heartedness. They, much like we do, wanted to think about grandiose victory, not humility. They wanted a conqueror, not a carpenter. They wanted a promise of power in this world, not a life of sacrifice, submission, and service. What does our world promote in its messaging to the masses? It promotes worldly victory, conquering and dominating, living your best life now. That is what they were looking for. <clears throat> Israel asks in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the answer is, well, not many. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is a symbol of God's power. So. Who has the power of God been revealed, basically? And sadly, the answer again is not many. <clears throat> Only those who have put their faith in him. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it's a familiar verse for you, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So who has believed what they have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Sadly, they are in the minority. Verse 2 reveals the way in which they viewed him. They described him as a young plant, a root out of dry ground. 
someone uh, in reading about this, a commentator described it as one of those, um, one of those little plants that comes out around your, like maple trees. And they're thinking they're going to grow into a maple tree too, but they're just something that needs to be picked. They don't look good. They describe Jesus as a young plant, or God described him as a young plant, a root out of dry ground. He was entirely insignificant to the Jews. He was the carpenter's son. This isn't a criticism of carpenters, but it wasn't what they were looking for. There was nothing about him in their eyes to garner attention or merit. It was the Pharisees and the elders, the people of power that grabbed their gaze to the Jewish hierarchy and to the sycophants who surrounded and followed them. Jesus was a nuisance and a threat. My wife Mary is a gardener, among other things, and because of this I've learned a tiny bit about what's called growing zones, and I stress tiny. But from listening to her, the entire country is split up into zones, which give you guidance about where you can have success growing certain plants. Our zone here in central Illinois is called Zone 5. I think our zone in Florida was called 92 degrees for six months straight. (laughs) If you planted a tulip here in the fall, and in the spring a palm tree was sprouted, it would be puzzling. Not only is it the wrong zone for palm trees, it isn't even what you planted. The Jewish people, when told by the followers of Christ that Jesus was the Messiah, gave them a puzzled, scornful look and regarded his followers as Looney Tunes. It didn't fit what they envisioned as the Messiah. Like a palm tree is not what you envision when you plant a tulip, and it still doesn't today. Very few Jews regard Jesus as the Messiah. This passage is not preached in rabbis, by rabbis in synagogues. It's problematic because it doesn't fit the narrative, as people say. They still deny Jesus as the Messiah and are still waiting for a different one. Verse 3 uses descriptive terminology to describe him. His own people despised and rejected him. He was viewed as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. Make no mistake, this was true. But this was not how Jesus viewed himself. Jesus did not go around with the long face. He was not filled with self-loathing and internal pity parties. These descriptive words were how he was viewed by those who it says esteemed him not. Conversely, it says in Hebrews 12:2 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus did not go around with his head down, sulking, feeling sorry for himself. In that time of his ministry here, he was accomplishing what had been purposed from eternity past. Verses four through six, the servant's suffering. Just look at the phrases used by Isaiah in these verses. He has borne our griefs, meaning he carried the grief we in our sin put upon him. 
He carried our sorrows, the sorrows we have created in our sin. He was stricken. He suffered great distress. Think of him on the Mount of Olives with sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was smitten, meaning he was struck with blows. He was afflicted. Pain and suffering were put upon him in his ordeal. He was pierced for our transgressions, his hands, feet, and side on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. It was a crushing weight to pay for in every imaginable way. Upon him was chastisement, the rebuke that truly belonged to us. All of this should have been ours to suffer. But Jesus endured these willingly. It was not that he volunteered for this, nor was he drafted for this. Some of you uh, men in here may have been drafted for World War II or for the Korean War or for Vietnam. No, he along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit determined that this would take place before anything had ever been created. Adam's sin in the garden did not require an emergency meeting of the Godhead to undertake what should be done about this. God has never been surprised, nor has he ever been unknowing about anything that's ever happened, and he never will be surprised by anything that does happen. He is absolutely sovereign over all things, including and especially his suffering on the cross. Verse 6 is a verse we should all be familiar with. And we should memorize and we should remind ourselves on a daily basis. Here it is. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In any sermon, there are a lot of words. I would kindly ask you this morning, if you remember of anything what will be said Remember this verse. Look, we all sin. We sin a lot. Let's be honest. That's the truth. But when you consider what Jesus did for us on the cross, when you consider the sheer immensity of not only our sin, but the sins of all who have placed their faith in him, from Adam forward until now, it's beyond comprehension. The Heavenly Father, it says, laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is our sin, all of it. You may remember the verse from a great old hymn, it is well with my soul. That verse says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. It was paid for by Christ who was responsible for none of it. Why? Because it was the only way for us to have complete and eternal forgiveness. It was the only way, as Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no wiggle room in that statement. You often hear that there are many ways to God. That is a lie. 
the only way prescribed by the one who hung on a cross for you, who endured what he endured for you, is through faith in him and him alone. We are, as you undoubtedly know, in an election season. And during election season, you hear ad after ad that ends with, this message was paid for by so-and-so's election committee. Brothers and sisters, the gift of salvation was paid for by only one man, the sinless man, Jesus Christ. You cannot earn this. It doesn't matter how good you think you are or how good your mom thinks you are. You cannot earn it. I like how Alistair Begg describes this transaction. He says, God transfers the guilt of the guilty onto the head of the guiltless, Jesus. Only here is the provision and satisfaction for our sins. Truly, Jesus says to us, in effect, all of your guilt will be mine, and all of my righteousness will be yours if you would put your faith in me and me alone. Can you imagine? Christ did not deserve to die a criminal's death, or any death for that matter, having lived a sinless life, but he chose to for our sakes. We do deserve to die and suffer eternal damnation because we willingly choose to sin. Even though we were born into sin, we still own it. But in his great love and mercy, he can save us. The Jews in Jesus' day did not want him to reign over them. They had much different ideas of who the Messiah should be. They wanted a king to destroy their enemies, not a carpenter. In our world today, it's the same. This world does not want Jesus, but he is their only hope. He's our only hope. We move now to verses 7 through 9. The servant's silence. Verses 7 and 8 describe the affliction and oppression he endured as he was being judged by wicked, sinful people. During these proceedings before his accusers, his own people, along with Pilate and Herod, he didn't offer a defense. He didn't call rebuttal witnesses or make an impassioned final argument. He stood by what he had said and done in his life in front of all who would hear him and witness what he had done. He did not open his mouth to object because to do so would contradict the very passage of Scripture that we're looking at right now. What's more, he didn't object because this was his plan. He was not going to object to the plan that he had been put in place by the Godhead and eternity past. No one was going to force Jesus onto that cross. And no one was going to keep him off of it either. When Jesus was enduring all of this, he was not misrepresenting himself. He was not trying to deceive anyone. It says at the end of verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. His oppressors thought themselves cunning in burying him in a grave assigned to the wicked and the rich. The wicked and the rich were in the eyes of most people of that time considered pretty much one and the same. And they were no doubt thrilled that Jesus left no offspring of his own to carry on his lineage. In that era, this would have been considered an awful disgrace. Little did they know of the offspring that he would have. We are those offspring. The servant's satisfaction, verses 10 through 12. 
As Israel's lament begins to conclude, we're reminded that the grief, the crushing reality of what Christ endured for us was God's will. It was the chosen and planned execution, execution of God's rescue for his people, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And we don't think often enough about that description. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Because of our sin, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Because it was the remedy by which our sins could be forgiven. This is the gospel, and we ponder it too little. In our lives, we are encouraged to put behind us the awful traumatic things we experience so we can live free from those memories and not let them keep us in despair. And that's good. However, we think too little about the awful things Christ endured for us. It is healthy to remind ourselves continually of why it was God's will to crush Jesus. It was for our benefit. It was for our joy. It was for our salvation. And even though it was a brutal thing, for us it is good news. And that is how Christ wants us to live. And it is pleasing to him. In heaven we will worship him continually because it was the Lord's will to crush him. We ponder it too little because we, even as believers, like our sin too much. Yes, we confess our sin and repent of it, and that's a very good thing. We should always keep short accounts with the Lord, asking him to bring to mind immediately when we sin so we can immediately repent of it and not allow sin to linger in our hearts. That's spiritually unhealthy to let sin linger in us, to live day to day with unconfessed sin. It's like a parasite living inside you, causing spiritual and physical harm. David in the 32nd Psalm says this in verse three, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Have you ever felt that way? I wouldn't be here preaching about sin unless I was well acquainted with it. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in 19th century England. You've seen quotes from him on these screens uh, before because he so often strikes at the heart of the issues that confront us. Listen to this regarding our sin that we leave unconfessed. Surely that man must be in an unhealthy state of soul who can think of all that Jesus suffered and yet cling to those sins from which that suffering was undergone. It was sin that wove the crown of thorns. It was sin that pierced our Lord's hands and feet and side. It was sin that brought him to Gethsemane and Calvary, to the cross and to the grave. Sadly, the world thinks sin is funny. That sin is exciting. Sin, they think, is a way to prove to their peers that they are not like those uh, so-called stuffy, joyless, boring scolds that are cherry-picked by the media as a way to characterize those bigoted Christians. This description is from Satan himself. He practiced deception and lies in the Garden of Eden, and he practices it today. His resume is stacked. Sin can be enjoyable, but only for a moment. Only for a moment. 
In Job chapter 20, verses 12 through 14, Job's friend Zophar is speaking to Job. And what he says to Job is an unfair criticism in regards to Job himself. Nevertheless, his criticism is very true, generally speaking, regarding our sin. It says, though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. It is only sweet for a moment, and then you feel sick with regret. Sin is never enduringly satisfying. Jesus died for every one of our sins, brothers and sisters. We cannot spend our days and nights so busy with the world and its demands that we forget who we serve and what he suffered in order to rescue, rescue us from an eternity in hell. Never forget why it was the Lord's will to crush him and put him to grief. As Israel's lament begins to conclude, in verse 10 we hear the great joy that will be Christ's as he will see his offspring as a result of his sacrifice for us. If you belong to Christ, you are one of those offspring. Any joy that Jesus' persecutors may have taken in the fact that Jesus died without any offspring is completely and utterly turned on his head by Jesus seeing his spiritual offspring, by him wielding unlimited power forever. This, in stark contrast to how the religious hierarchy envisioned the outcome of his death. The first statement of verse 11 marks the end of Israel's lament over the Savior. In spite of all their deceitfulness, out of the anguish of his soul, which no one will ever be able to comprehend, Jesus would see and be satisfied. This is a prophecy of his resurrection. The grave, which his own people rejoiced in sending him to, would not hold him. The end of verse 11 and then verse 12, like the first three verses we looked at, is again God himself speaking. God says that his servant Jesus would, through his knowledge, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is imputation. It's a fancy word that means Jesus has given it to his people. All who have put their faith in him, his perfect righteousness. And this is how you will stand before God when your life is over, with perfect righteousness given to you by Christ. And he has taken from his people their sin. And he paid for it with his death on the cross. The only one who could have, the only sinless one. God cannot tolerate sin. Jesus solved our problem at enormous cost. He balanced the scales. He has, Scripture tells us, separated our, son, our sins from us as far as east is from the west. It's one of my favorite verses, to think that our sins are separated from us as far as east is from west. They'll never touch. Verse 12 uses language that we would recognize as the outcome of a victory of a conquering king. Portions and spoils will be divided by God himself to his servant Jesus. We are his reward a people of his own 
who will worship him, serve him, and glorify him for eternity. And for us, this will be more satisfying than words can possibly express. It will be Jesus' reward because he poured out his soul to death, a death on the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. He lived among us sinners, but did not sin himself. He bore, meaning took up the sins of many. He makes intercession for the transgressors, meaning he intervened on our behalf. People hopelessly lost in sin to save us. Have you heard the phrase used often by sportscasters when an athlete has performed so skillfully in leading his team to victory that someone will say, he put his team on his back and he carried them to victory. Jesus has carried us to victory by taking our deserved punishment. He has put us on his back. Or perhaps better stated, he has put our sins on his back. So I would ask, have you put your faith in Jesus to save you from the penalty of your sin, meaning hell? The world tries to complicate everything, and Satan is very happy about that. But the most critical question you will answer in this life is not complicated. What have you done about Jesus? Scripture tells us about an incident in the Apostle Paul's life. He and his friend Silas were in jail when an earthquake occurred, and it became possible for them to escape the jail. But Paul chose not to. No doubt because of Paul's previous witness to the jailer while being incarcerated, when the jailer arrived and discovered that they were still there, even though they could have escaped, he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? The jailer was not asking how he could be saved from trouble or hardship as a result of an earthquake, but how he could be made right with God. Notice Paul didn't answer by telling him to work diligently to live an honorable and exemplary life. Nor did he encourage him to just try to do better than most other people that he could compare himself to. And these are common beliefs amongst our neighbors. Instead, Paul answered, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Today you can pray to God and ask him to forgive you for the sins that you have committed that caused him to bear your sins on the cross. Tell him that you believe in him, that you have faith in him, as the only one who can forgive you for your sins and the only one who can take you to be with him in heaven when you die. I would encourage you to do this today if you haven't. Jesus, God's servant, is our rescue. You are surrounded by people in this auditorium who would be glad to talk to you, to pray with you, to direct you to someone who you can talk to. Don't hesitate to do it. Do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your glorious plan. Determined 
with the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue us. We need rescue. So Lord, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for enduring what you endured willingly. Pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts now with your love. Give us a passion. Give us a passion for living for you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.